0: Welcome to episode 6 of Diary of a Cabinet Maker. If you haven't yet listened to the previous episodes, then I highly recommend you listen to them first to catch up on the story so far. If you've all caught up, great. Let's continue. On reaching Jaffa, I was shocked to receive a telegram from London saying I should return at once as my wife was dying. I was in a worried state of mind, and I called on my friend Haikin to ask his advice. The goods had not arrived, I had made no settlement about the Tel Aviv factory, and my mind was confused. I wanted to stay, but of course, without Ray, my plans amounted to nothing, and I would have to return to London. I did wonder if they had heard about the rioting and the telegram might have been a trick to get me away from the trouble. I thought I would wait for the post to see if there was a letter confirming the telegram. As it happened, the rioting had upset the postal arrangements, and there was no mail, so I had no alternative but to make my way, sadly, back to England. I left instructions that if a letter came for me, they should wire, and I would return to Jaffa. I also left my bill of ladings for the goods which had yet to show up. I never heard a word more about them. Now, I don't know whether the government confiscated them, or whether the man with whom I left the papers cheated me out of them but I never got any benefit from them, or any news. I felt I couldn't leave the Holy Land without buying a plot of land, if only to draw me back, and as at that time the Beit Vagan Association was being formed, I joined them and bought my plot. Today, it is called Bat I made my return journey in stages because I hadn't booked a return ticket, when I got to Port Said, I could get no booking and was told I would have to wait three to four months because the only way back to England would be on a ship returning from Australia and they were fully booked as it was the height of the season. I tried all ways to get a booking and showed the telegram from London but to no avail. However, I was given a permit to enter the port and try my luck. I tried several ships without success, then one cargo boat captain said he would take me, and the steward fixed me up with a cabin, and I gave him £5, which in 1920 was a very big tip indeed. In fact, in 2020, this is worth approximately £225. This ends my very shortened account of my first visit to the Holy Land and since then it is not Palestine anymore but the State of Israel and I have been blessed to see it come into being. I well remember in 1921 I was on my way to the Mahzika Hadass Synagogue in London one Kol Nidre night on the eve of the Day of Atonement, feeling particularly upset to see more of the large recruiting posters inviting men to join the Palestine Police. We all knew that specially selected types were chosen for these duties. The black shirts and thugs, who delighted even in London in kicking Jews around, and for whom it was a field day to be stationed in Palestine, wearing uniform and carrying on their bullying tactics. It was whilst I was in an unhappy mood over this, that I came upon a police constable running in, a very old bearded man. I asked the constable what he had done, and he said he had been begging. I tried to explain to him that it is a custom for very poor Jews to stand outside the synagogue, especially on this night, to solicit alms, but it was no good. I followed them to the police station and asked the inspector why the man was being charged, pointed out about the custom of our race and that this was the eve of the holiest day in our calendar. I didn't get much sympathy from the inspector until I told him that I live in a police station myself and when he learned who I was he asked me if I would stand bail in the sum of £40 for the old man and I agreed to. But on such a holy night I couldn't carry money so I went home and had my little girl Dina carry it to the police station to get him released. I had an anxious time over this good deed because on the day he was to have been tried at Old Street Police Court the old man didn't show up and they told me that, as I was responsible for him, I would have to forfeit my bail money. I went around to many synagogues looking for him and asking after him, and finally I did locate him, and he said that he didn't turn up because he hadn't done anything wrong. Anyway, I went back to the police and managed to satisfy them, and so it all came right and I did get the old man out of trouble. This story doesn't really have to do with Palestine – it took place in London. The only reason I mention it is that the events happened whilst my blood was boiling over the Palestine police recruiting posters. My second visit to the Holy Land took place in 1935, when I was about 50 years old. This time I set out alone, without a travelling companion. I rarely escape without some adventure or other, and this time when I arrived at Marseille to go aboard the SS Champlain, It turned out there was not a single cabin, which I had booked in London, but that I had to share a double. I was not too pleased about this, but on meeting my fellow voyager he turned out to be a pleasant enough gentleman. The first morning, when I was putting on my talus and tefillin for prayers, to my surprise he brought out his own and told me that he too was an Orthodox Jew.' He was Mr Julius Eimer from London and we became very friendly and enjoyed our voyage together sitting at one of the kosher tables for meals. After visiting Palestine he was going on to South Africa but he said that on his return to London he was getting married. To my surprise, when I was back home he called on me after returning from South Africa and asked me to be his best man at his wedding, accompanied by Ray and I was very honoured and pleased.' We furnished his home and later, at the Brit of each of his two sons, he also did me the honour of asking me to act as Sandek. So I made a very nice friend indeed. After our arrival in Palestine, he took me around and showed me one or two places and he also took my regards to my sister Dora and her husband Charlie and to my sister Ray and her husband Max when he went to South Africa. The first people I called on in Jerusalem were the Grivers. I told them about the time I wanted to visit Mother Rachel's tomb in Bethlehem on my visit in 1920, but had been prevented from doing so by the Arab riot. They took me to the Jaffa Gate, and there were some Arab buses in a state of advanced dilapidation held together with wire and string, and the prospect of riding in them didn't give me much pleasure. I asked if these were the only transportation to be had to Bethlehem and the Grivers said that it was. So there was nothing else for it and I climbed aboard. It wasn't a great journey, but at least we arrived in Bethlehem. The Grivers got off the bus before me and no sooner had I put one foot on the ground than the driver started the bus and I fell flat on the ground and couldn't move. In retrospect, I wish Mr Griver had taken a note of the number of the bus because I would have sued the company but unfortunately he didn't. I couldn't walk and was carried into the room in which the tomb is and there I lay next to Mother Rachel. They got a taxi and took me to their home and although they did what they could, I was in great pain. Griver Senior called in an old woman who mumbled something and spat to drive the devil away, but it didn't help me a bit. So I finally went by taxi to my hotel in Tel Aviv where I was put to bed and a doctor was called. He examined my swollen foot but couldn't find anything wrong and the x-ray examination showed there was no break, only bad bruising. So he put a plaster cast on my foot and I had to use a walking stick all the time. Apart from the pain and the inconvenience, what really annoyed me about the whole business was that in the Tel Aviv hotel where I was staying there was a timetable of a Jewish bus company which ran trips to Jerusalem and the Wailing Wall and Bethlehem and so on. Anyway... I digress. My main purpose on this trip was to redeem the vow I had made fifteen years earlier and arrange for the building of my house. I had already paid for a plot of land in the tract belonging to the Baked Vegan Association. Now it was time to go and choose the actual plot. I had arranged to have my friend Scheinbaum go with me to the site. Before then, however, a man called on me and said that he knew what I had paid for my plot and was prepared to buy it from me for £300. I turned it down, and he raised it to £500. The next day, another man offered me a 1000 and reached 2000 but I refused to sell, making it plain that I had come to build a house on it. I had to tell the hotelier I didn't want to see anyone else who came on similar business. There was a simple reason for this increase in land values, of course – The Arab authorities had issued a threat of death to any Arab who sold land to a Jew because they didn't want Jews to come and settle. Many Arabs did, in fact, pay with their lives for selling land, but those who came later than I did, and especially wealthy people from America and South Africa who wanted land to build on, would pay practically any price. So it came to pass that I went with Scheinbaum to choose my plot and was shown a plan on which the available plots were marked. So far as the land was concerned, there was nothing to see but sand, which was parceled up with stakes and numbered markers. So I said to Scheinbaum, which one do you think I should choose? And he felt it was taking a chance to choose any of them. But one plot was numbered 17. And being a bit sentimental, as I lived at number 17 in London, that settled it, and that was the one I booked. You have to remember that back in 1935, there was little to see in Battyam, the plot I chose was about 500 metres from the sea. Now, I had to wait some time for the title deeds to come through, but I didn't waste that time. We got out building plans and estimates from several building firms. I didn't give the contract to the lowest price builder because I'd already seen some of his work and didn't like it. I also made inquiries about the others and was not too satisfied. So I gave it to the best builder in Palestine, Mizrad Hakablani, which is now Soleil Bonaire. I laid down the condition that only Jewish labour was to be employed but there were no roads at all and all the material had to be brought up by camels and as only Arabs did this camel transportation work I couldn't avoid using them. The price for building the house, a single storey two bedroom apartment, was £650, equivalent to £46,500 in 2020, although it was understood that there would be extras. We made provision for the walls to be strong enough to carry another story, if later it should need to be added. Then, when it was all arranged, I went to my plot, and, as is the custom, dug the first few spadefuls of earth for the foundations of my house. The builder examined it and said it was virgin soil, which had never been worked since creation. How they can tell this, I don't understand. But we completed the ceremony by making a blessing and drinking wine, and all those present said Amen to my thanks to the Almighty. My late father would have given part of his life to be able to build a house in the Holy Land, but in his time it was forbidden for a Jew to do so in his own name. Like others, he tried to do it in Cyprus, which was as close as they could get, but lost the lot. So my heart was full on the day I turned the first earth for my house. In fact, the foundation was laid on Ray's birthday, March the 8th, and I sent a telegram to her to mark the happy occasion. And that concludes the tale of my 1935 visit. Next time on Diary of a Cabinet Maker, it's 1949 and Michael travels to Palestine once more with his wife. Let's just say the journey wasn't plain sailing. You can read the transcript for this episode on the accompanying website. The details are in the show notes. Please don't forget to subscribe where you normally listen to your podcasts so that you don't miss an episode. Thank you very much for listening.